Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek and Wix.com. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of March 4th, 2019. On this week's episode, we will preview the Chicago White Sox 2019 infield. There will be some changes in the dirt as Yoan Mikata and Yomer Sanchez appear to be switching places. What's the purpose of this move? What impact will it have on Mikata? Can Tim Anderson build off his 2018 season? How do we think playing time will work out at first base between Jose Breu and Yonder Alonso? Well, Greg Nix will join me later in the show as we try to answer all those questions. Speaking of questions, you, our listeners, had plenty of questions this week about the Chicago White Sox, which we'll answer later in P.O. Sox. But first, free agency is almost done. We are just left with Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keuchel to find new homes to complete the Sox Machine Free Agent Pick'em Challenge. That's because Bryce Harper has signed with the Philadelphia Phillies on a 13-year contract that's a much lower than Manny Machado's AAV because in the end, what was most important to Harper was to find a permanent home in which he could help build a winning culture, recruit some of the top players in Major League Baseball, and bring home World Series titles. Gee, not the type of player the White Sox could have used at all. If we rewind the clock to early November, it wouldn't be a shock that the White Sox lost out on both Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. It's just that the ball club, quote-unquote, tried, but their efforts were not meeting Machado's criteria at all and guaranteeing $300 million. And after meeting with Harper and dressing up the United Center for his recruiting trip, the White Sox didn't even bother making an offer. Time well spent. 
So with the White Sox offseason officially over in their pursuits with Bryce Harper now signed with Philadelphia. Oh, no, by the way, just to twist a knife in the back, Nolan Arenado staying in Colorado for the next seven years. I asked the general public how they feel about Rick Khan, Kenny Williams, and owner Jerry Reinsdorf after all that's happened. Well, joining me to discuss the results and ponder what makes a good baseball front office is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. After the Phillies signed Harper, they sold 180,000 new tickets on Thursday and Friday last week. And for Fanatics.com, the new Phillies Bryce Harper jersey is now the one-day highest-selling jersey of all time. No other player from any other league has sold more jerseys in a single day than Bryce Harper's new Phillies jersey. Sure would have been a nice boost for the White Sox, Jim. Yeah, they could use something like that. You know, everything you mentioned, the jersey sales, the idea of recruiting top talent, the idea of stability, um, just the massive interest it sparked, uh, the White Sox could have used at least some of that. Yeah, after you hear more details in Bryce Harper speaking about what was important to him, uh, it just I really wonder what the White Sox were doing in November. Again, it, it kind of piggybacks off of their pursuit of Manny Machado, in which maybe the idea was that they wanted to finish in second. Uh, maybe they really want to pat themselves to the back that, hey, we met with Bryce Harper in November and, and we dressed up the United Center. And we, we, we had a recruiting trip with him in Chicago. We put his jersey on Michael Jordan's statue, you know. But at the end of the day, what are those efforts worth if you're not going to actually make an offer to sign him, right? It's mm-hmm. just pointless. Like you're taking him out on the town for a day trip. I don't know what their whole pursuit of Bryce Harper was about at the end. Uh, but then <laughs> again, like I said, twisting the knife a little bit more, Nolan Arenado is going to stay with the Colorado Rockies for the next seven years. So with the White Sox missing out on Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, and now that Nolan Arenado is not going to be a free agent. Oh, and out of Washington, it sounds like they're talking a long-term extension with Anthony Rendon. Um, yeah, the White Sox plan A, B, and C to fix third base uh, are going to go out of the window. So, mm-hmm. hat tip to the front office. And after this all transpired, since our last recording, I asked the public how they feel about the job that Rick Kahn, Kenny Williams, and Jerry Reinstorf are doing. Kind of a way just to get a, a pulse reading on how White Sox fans really feel about the front office at the moment. But before releasing the results, because I the questions were on how good these three are at their jobs, I want to discuss what we think makes a good baseball executive. So, Jim, what do you think makes a good GM? Well, I think it's changed now because I think uh, before, you know, we would say is a, a open to all information, has a you know, variety of um types in the front office, not just ex-players or scouts or whatever, but, you know, analytic types and um, really is on the forefront and experimenting with the, the newest information. And now I think that's basically standard. And I think even the White Sox do that and then they've added to their front office and research and development types. So it seems like every front office is basically the same. 
um, you know, largely composition wise, it's mostly um, an, an analytic approach, uh, a non-player uh, calling the shots. And so when it comes to what makes a good front office, it's probably more, yeah, in, in this case, showing that you can do it. <laughs> it's a little bit weird, but I mean, like with the White Sox, you know, when Rick Hahn took over, the idea was like, okay, yeah, you know, we we saw enough of Kenny Williams and his, um, you know, always going for it, the uh, alpha male competitiveness, um, trying to win over rebuilding, not having a long-term vision, um, just always wanting to win the day. And that seemed to burn out. And so going to Rick Hahn and, and being more of a analytic type and, and uh, you know, somebody with an Ivy League uh, background and MBA, Seemed like, you know, that was the right call, but really the information the same. I, I think maybe when it comes down to, um, uh, you know, the front office, it's maybe more just trying to find a mix that actually works because the White Sox, you know, when it comes to their advanced scouting, when it comes to their, um, you know, when it comes to their, their player acquisition and their evaluation, it seems like, you know, no matter what they've done, trading, trading for prospects, trading, you know, uh, for veterans, signing veterans, just like they find it very hard to even meet expectations. It always seems to come up a shade lower. Like I'm thinking like Todd Frazier, somebody like him. Um, you know, he had a decent White Sox career, but he was a little bit disappointing. The average was low, a lot of pop-ups. Uh, he hit 40 homers, but it was kind of an empty 40 homers. There wasn't the there wasn't the anchor they were looking for at third base. So yeah, that's what's yeah, hard to talk about front offices. Now everybody has the same background, but it comes to the white Sox, they have a similar background and composition as other front offices, but for whatever reason, uh, they just haven't proven that they can do it. Yeah. I think good baseball executives can multitask in which they can get the results that you're talking about, Jim, they can go out and make the big trades and make the big signings, to focus on the present by building a winning ball club today. But with their system in place, they continue to get results. They continue to sign top international prospects, right, from the Dominican Republic. And they draft well. And they get some of the best talent domestically, and they could develop it. And I think that's where, in my opinion, the White Sox struggle. I don't think this White Sox front office can multitask. That they have to really zero in on one task to do one task well. And I think in this rebuild, they're stuck at this transition, right? Where they're still trying to develop all this young talent, but there was this opportunity in free agency this offseason where they could have had a, you know, they could have signed a 26 year old superstar that fit in exactly what their best laid plans were. But they, they just have a tough time multitasking. Yeah, I think the Reds, I think, you know, when you mentioned multitasking or shifting gears, uh, a couple front offices come to mind. One is the Rays. Um, you know, they throw a lot of stuff at the wall uh, because they have to. Uh, they're so resource starved that um, they, they have to create different ways to win, whether you're talking about the opener or, or um, trying to get, you know, whether it's uh, shifting or, uh, you know, major platoon you know, platoon action and, and, and going for uh, guys who might be undervalued because they're limited and trying to take advantage of those limitations. Um, you know, they, they just find a way to maximize their roster, maybe out of necessity. The Reds are a team I'm going to be fascinated by to see if they can change their narrative because I think they were 
maybe in the same position as the White Sox, where they were rebuilding, they weren't really getting traction. They had some great players, um, but weren't able to fashion a rotation together. Uh, you know, had a hard time developing pitchers, so they've tried to power their way out of it with a bunch of trades and, and signings. You know, Yasiel Puig and Alex Wood and Tanner Rourke, um, and that's kind of what I wanted to see the White Sox do. Uh, Add to the players, or you know, add to the roster without compromising their long-term vision, without blocking anybody, which I think the Reds have done well. Make themselves more interesting and see if you can get, you know, 80 wins out of it. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's out of completely out of hand for the Reds. I think the division makes it tough, but you know, they're a team that's trying to, yeah, I guess, multitask in a way, or at least shift gears and and get themselves out of one mode that hadn't been working. And if it works. Uh, I, I hope it works because I hope more teams follow their lead in trying to force themselves to be more competitive than they were on like their natural timeline. Now, the one question that I have a difficult time answering is what do you think makes a good baseball owner? Spending? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the only thing that I could think of is being a being willing to keep up with spending. Pretty much. So going back to the Rays, the Rays, I think, are a good example of of a good baseball front office. But they're also an example of bad baseball ownership. Yeah, I think the A's kind of fit that mode, too. Yes, that's a good example. So to the poll results, uh, before we get to the poll results, though, with that good baseball owner. uh, So John Middleton, the owner of the Philadelphia Phillies said in his interview after the Bryce Harper signing that his quote was, I said, Scott, as in Scott Boris, I'm not interested in talking about marketing dollars, tickets sold, billboards, or concessions. There's only one reason I'm talking to you, and that's because I believe this guy, Bryce Harper, can help us win, and that's all I care about. And I said I've made enough money in my life. I don't need to make more. My franchise value has risen dramatically over the last 25 years, I don't need it to rise more. If it does, fine. I'm here to win, and I think your guy can help me win. So for the Phillies, I think your owner is good for baseball. And we've seen the same attitude in Detroit before Mike Gillich passed away, in which they tried. And I know White Sox fans love to rub in the salt to Tigers fans that they were not able to bring home a world championship. But man, those Tigers teams were dangerous and you knew that Detroit, even the small market that Detroit is, uh, they played like a big market team. And I think it's good for baseball. And I think John Middleton is a good baseball owner with that type of mentality that I don't think teams can fail if you have an owner who wants to have that you know, mentality that they want to win and they will do whatever it takes to win. Yeah, that quote, uh, you know, I think it's maybe a little bit of revisionist history or self-serving, <laughs> to put it that way, because I think I'm he does sure care. It, uh, it kind of reminds me of the San Diego uh, story in, in Sports Illustrated where Ron Fowler and A.J. Preller argued about, you know, or I guess like, uh, you know, Fowler talked about how it was his idea to go to uh, go to Machado after trades didn't work out, and Preller, I think, hinted that it was his idea, <laughs> but wasn't uh, going to undercut the owner for actually uh, spending the money. And, and I think that was kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was maybe more true to form in how these discussions worked out. But yeah, it's just ultimately the, the discussion about franchise valuation and the fact that these guys are going to come out way ahead, no matter what, you know, 
kind of major contract to sign, unless you sign like maybe five, six, seven Machados, you know, where you really cripple your, you know, you're spending you know, a $300 million payroll and paying all this luxury tax and maybe not getting uh, the wins to, I, I guess, get the revenue back. But even then, maybe they can probably afford it. But, um, you know, just having one outlay like this that is maybe feels like a bit of a chance, but they're already so far ahead with what the franchise is worth that, uh, you know, they're going to get their money back and, and, and probably, you know, multifold. Oh, easily, easily over the next 13 years with Bryce Harper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Every T-Mobile commercial now with Philly's gear cover of the, the, the video game with MLB, the show. Yeah. Gatorade commercials. Yeah. They're, they're going to get the publicity. They're going to get the marketing dollar. So signing Bryce Harper is not only a great baseball move, but we've been saying it from the very beginning. It's a great business move. And the fact that the White Sox didn't make a good, didn't make an offer at all is not only a bad baseball move, but also a bad baseball business decision. Uh, so, so let's get to the poll results. Uh, I did this via Twitter and I asked about Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams, and Jerry Reinsdorf. So starting with Rick Hahn, is Rick Hahn a good GM? And the choices were yes, no, and unsure. And when it comes to Rick Hahn, only 25% said that Rick Hahn is a good GM. 34% have said no. 41% are still unsure. Kenny Williams, is he a good executive vice president of baseball operations? 4% say yes. 87% say no. 9% are unsure. And then the last one is Jerry Reinsdorf, a good baseball owner. 7% of White Sox fans say yes. 86% say no. And 7% are unsure. So, Jim, what are your thoughts about the poll results? Well, yeah, I guess I expected Han to get the most uh, generous treatment just because I, I would say, you know, when it comes to sorting them out, I tend to not sort them out. Um, they're just a decision-making engine. Um, you know, it was like that when Kenny was GM, it's like that now when Hans GM, they're in it together. Um, you know, and they don't seem to want to care to shift blame or, or, you know, assign credit. Um, you know, Han for one is, you know, when he's had a move that hasn't worked out, he seems to want to accept blame. So I tend to pin it on him. You know, if, if it's like something like Deanna Navarro, um, you know, not working out or James Shields, if, you know, he's the one that had the idea or, um, you know, claims to have the idea, I'll, I'll take his word for it. But, um, it's kind of like, you know, you know, when answering those questions, like, no, 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 but, uh, you know, and, and not really giving it too much thought. The one thing with Reinsdorf is that he's probably not a good owner, but he's also the best <laughs> owner the White Sox have had. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> so, you know, when you read about the history of the White Sox and, you know, whether it's, you know, the original Comiskey was probably, you know, number one or number two, depending on how you look at it. The Black Sox, pretty big uh, black mark on his record for, you know, what he contributed to that. But he also, you know, established the franchise. He spent, uh, you know, in line with other owners and, and maybe more when you consider building Comiskey Park and uh, laying the template. You know, maybe he outpaces Reinsdorf, but when it comes to spending and stability and, you know, outfitting the franchise to compete with the others... Um, it's basically Reinsdorf and then maybe, uh, Chuck Comiskey in the fifties, but yeah, it's pretty, uh, um, yeah, it's not great. Their history overall. 
it's not a high bar for Jerry Reinsdorf to clear when you're comparing Reinsdorf to other White Sox owners. So you would say in the, what, 118-year history of Chicago White Sox baseball that they haven't had a good baseball owner. They've had one for times, I would say. Like, the, you know, the, the body of work, uh, I think, is lacking. And I think when you go back to Reinsdorf and, you know, taking the team over in 81 and, you know, they made the playoffs in 83, 93, 2000, 2005, 2008, that's it. That's not a good track record. No, it's not. <laughs> and it's also the best or most playoff success that any White Sox owner has had. So it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and I think that this, um, yeah, when he approved the rebuild and when that first happened, I think there was a lot of talk about how he's changed his mind, how he's, um, you know, he's willing to, uh, except that um, he's going to need to step back and, and let this happen. And, and uh, hopefully he's uh, still in good shape and, and uh, doesn't have any kind of major health crises in between the White Sox getting good again. But then when he could have helped accelerate that process, he didn't. So uh, I, I think a lot of the goodwill that he engendered by supporting the rebuild, okaying it, has been completely dismantled. And I'm not sure uh, what the long game is. So back to Rick Hahn. Uh, we got this comment slash question from one of our Patreon supporters, Chris Krebs. And Chris, thank you so much for your support. And Chris wrote to us, everybody, including me, is down on Rick Hahn right now. Yeah, the Machado thing was a dumpster fire. However, hasn't Rick Hahn made some pretty good moves? Getting Eloy Jimenez and Cease for Quintana seems like a pretty good deal. Also getting Giolito, Lopez, and Dunning for Adam Eaton is looking pretty good, despite the fact that Giolito doesn't look like the sure thing we thought he might be. Okay, Chris Sale won a World Series, and Yohan Makata is still a prospect, and Kopech is on the DL, and then there's Basabe. But taken as a body of work, this doesn't seem that bad to me. Thoughts? It's bad when you consider... Uh, that he's out of that currency. Like, you know, all those moves described were trading great players on great contracts. Um, and I think any GM can trade great contracts for interesting young talent. So it's hard to give him extra credit there. I think maybe the one move I would give him credit for is Jose Quintana, you know, waiting as long as he did because uh, it, it required some patience. Um, part of that might have been flooding the market with like items. <laughs> you know, when, you, when you have all these guys hitting the market at one time, whether whether it's uh, Eaton or Sale and Katana, and you know, having all these, um, you know, you're trying to extract the same price. You know, multiple top 100 prospects. You know, it just might be some fatigue on the market. Um, you're trying to extract that kind of price from multiple teams, and and, and um, you know, having Sale and Eaton go before Quintana and maybe just couldn't finding, you know, not finding a third bidder, maybe any team would have run into that. But I think, you know, Han did a good job of not forcing a deal when it seemed like, you know, it, it'd be dangerous carrying Quintana into the regular season. And uh, even though Quintana wasn't his usual self in the first half, he still got a great package from the Cubs. So I, I think that move, I might give him a little extra credit for as opposed to, you know, a, a standard replacement level GM. But you know, now that they don't have any great players on great contracts and are trying to accumulate those guys or develop those guys from within, you know, we haven't seen one of those players yet. Um, he has had a terrible record on free agents and trades, um, you know, trading for veterans and, and, and supplementing the roster that way. Uh, he would have been better off after trading for uh, Abreu and Eaton just doing absolutely nothing. 
you know, for the last three years. I think he would have come out ahead if he just, you know, basically sat on his roster as it was rather than trying to improve it because he made the team actively worse. So uh, that's that's why I think, you know, it's it's fair to be down on him and call him a bad GM or, um, you know, even if Kenny's there, just, you know, the, the, the record of players acquired, um, you know, it's just terrible. And I, I would think that if Kenny were the one driving it and, and if all the bad decisions were Kenny ideas and all the good ones were Rick Hahn's ideas, I think Rick Hahn would want to go somewhere else where he might be in charge to where he wouldn't have somebody saddling all his great ideas with terrible ones. Um, it would seem like, you know, it would be in his interest to go somewhere else and build up a better, uh, reputation, even if, you know, maybe working for Jerry Reinsdorf is the, uh, you know, ideal when it comes to security. Um, but so I, that's why I don't separate them just because, oh, and over the last six years, the acquisitions, whether it's been players in their prime players, uh, you know, uh, on the downside, trying to, uh, acquire, um, out of options guys or, or buy low, nothing has really clicked. And I, I don't think you can blame that all on Kenny and I don't really bother trying to. So looking at the decision-making engine, as you call it with Rick Conn, Kenny Williams, and Jerry Reinstorf, do you think they are good at their jobs? No, not right now. Um, I, I think this, you know, the, the rebuild got off to a good start. Um, but I think when it comes to supplementing it, um, and maybe that, you know, and that's why, in this case, when you when you listen to uh, Kenny and and Rick, when you when you listen to them try to justify it and the fact that they can't, you know, they, all their you know various explanations, all their various tones, whether it's you know Han's approach of uh, you know very disciplined soundboard like um, you know repetitive message uh, that's inarguable but also unsatisfying. You know, you have that. Then you have Kenny's kind of emotional response and, you know, a self-pity and condescension, all these weird angles he's trying, and none of it works from either of them. Uh, yeah, I think the only explanation might be that they thought they are going to get more support from ownership, and they didn't, and they can't throw him under the bus because that's their, uh, you know, that's who cuts their checks. Um, yeah, that's really the uh, where I'd pin it. So maybe, uh, you know, if I were trying to... I guess pin the most blame. I'd blame it on either. You could blame it on, on Ryan's door for, you know, not spending the money when it seemed like it was lined up for the market falling in uh, to place perfectly for them to make this big move. But also if Kenny and Rick, you know, they, they built up for this and didn't know, or, or didn't understand the risk of having ownership come up so short on their offer. Um, I, I think that's a misread by them too. You know, if they, if they didn't know or, didn't understand that uh, Reinsdorf didn't want to go in all the way. And that's something I think they should have known going into this. Yeah, if Anthony Rendon signs that extension with the Washington Nationals, the best position player available next year in free agency is Boston Red Sox shortstop Xander Bogarts. And if Bogarts still wants to be a shortstop moving forward, that may necessarily may not necessarily be a good fit for even for the White Sox. So, yeah, uh, I think P. Knowles warned everyone about this in his pieces on SoxMachine.com mm-hmm. about that the White Sox could not miss out on this offseason because nothing was going to be guaranteed next offseason. Well, next year in free agency, even though the White Sox, I think, could use starting pitchers, uh, it's going to be a lot of starting pitchers that will lead as far as the top free agents available. And... <laughs> Well, you know, the White Sox, we know they have their limits in the starting pitching front, Jim, and I'm sure they are still concerned about signing 
free agent pitchers to long-term deals from their experience signing John Danks to that five-year deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So maybe, you know, this is repetitive and we see a repeat of this next off season. And I know White Sox fans don't want to hear that now in March of 2019, but I just don't see how they improve upon this front moving forward. Yeah. Maybe, you know, like maybe not, not to raise hopes, but in this case, when you have so many, uh, you know, compelling free agent pitchers, maybe that's the one way the White Sox can actually get involved is by having, you know, like talking about with the trades and, and uh, you know, having so many like players on the market. Maybe that's the one way the White Sox can contend, you know, like in, in, in front of uh, free agent running is to, you know, have all the bigger teams sign a pitcher before, uh, you know, they get to them and still have pitchers left over for a team like the White Sox to move in. Well, yeah, there's maybe. Dallas Keuchel right now, and they yeah. don't seem very interested. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, and, and I guess we'll find out, you know, with his performance this year, whether there is one big reason why all these teams are staying away. But I think when you have, you know, Sale and Cole and, and Bumgarner and, and so forth, like maybe enough teams pounce on a starter to where the White Sox can get in on one at a price that makes more sense to them. But that's also just not very exciting to have the idea that the White Sox are maybe going to get the leftovers. I just have a very difficult time seeing the White Sox offer an eight-year, $250 million contract to a Garrett Cole or even try to bring Chris Sale back, which is funny in my mind, mm-hmm. because of the limitations of their starting pitch. I, I, I could see the White Sox offer a five-year deal, but nothing mm-hmm. more than five years. Yep. And, and I don't think that that will not net you the top tier as far as starting pitchers, didn't that's why the Yankees lost out on Patrick Corbin, and that's why Patrick Corbin is signing with the Washington Nationals. Yeah, I just wonder how many you know with Keuchel not being signed. I wonder if the uh, thinking or you know, who knows maybe collective thinking from front offices has changed on pitchers to where Cor- you know Corbin got a deal, but uh, nobody you know no other pitchers have really made a killing. Um, even you know Eovaldi. Got an okay deal, um, but still not, you know, when it comes to the second biggest pitcher in the market deal, you know, it's not the standard one we've seen, you know, where it's, you know, uh, threatening, uh, you know, $100 million. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about next year's market and having so many big name pitchers and having so many teams who are apparently sitting out on free agency to where I do wonder whether there's somebody gonna get, who's going to get the Keuchel treatment at the end of it. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Again, that'll be a topic for, well, let's say, next March uh, 2020 <laughs> with the way free agency yep. has been working in Major League Baseball. But if the White Sox are going to make this leap from a rebuilder to a contender, it's going to be the players that they currently have. And we're going to need to see, see, some, see some progress from them as far as in their development. So far in spring training, before we preview the infield, uh, let's just roll down what has been impressive so far in the first couple of weeks of spring training games. Yohan Mikata, 6 for 15. He struck out seven times, though. Tim Anderson, 7 for 16. So Timmy's hitting well. Uh, Nikito Monaco is hitting well. He's 6 for 12. Uh, John Jay has two home runs. Uh, I don't know if he'll have two home runs during the regular season. So he's flexing some power <laughs> in spring training. And Luis Robert, three for eight. All three base hits have been extra base hits, two triples and a home run. That's fun. What's not fun is the pitching. The pitching has not been good early. Carson Fulmer hasn't looked sharp. 
from his work from driveline. We were hoping to see good results early from him. We haven't seen that yet. Manny Benuelos hasn't been sharp. Aaron Bummer is walking a lot of batters. Uh, I know it's Arizona, Jim. It's early in spring training, and spring training numbers will fool you. But looking at the first couple of weeks of games, you know, who's impressed and who hasn't been impressive so far? Well, you know, I, I think we've seen a lot of Arizona-like box scores and and the White Sox getting in on that in good ways. Like, you know, you mentioned all those, you know, offensive performers like Yonder Alonzo's, you know, he's hit a couple of homers. He's shown some power. Um, I think by and large, you know, the non-Eloy outfield prospects have all been great. I think Rutherford's, you know, had some moments. You mentioned Robert. Uh, Luis Gonzalez is yeah, four for 11. Yeah, yeah, Luis Gonzalez is the other one I was thinking of. Like, uh, and, and Mike Rodolfo is starting to get in the game shape, and he's, uh, you know, he's had some uh, highlights in uh, on Twitter. So I think it's been encouraging for all those players um, making steps. And I'm hoping that, you know, part of that is legit. <laughs> at, least, you know, <laughs> at least part of that is legit. And I'm hoping partially that it's part of a product of the Arizona environment just because that takes the heat off the pitchers performing so poorly. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I hope this does not carry over because boy, if it does, Jim, April is going to be rough, but hopefully soon we'll get to see Irvin Santana who will be the new White Sox fifth starter. I assume uh, if he is healthy and ready to go, uh, and, you know, we'll get to see a little bit more of Lopez and Giolito. Carlos Rodon has made a start. Uh, we haven't seen Ivan Nova yet. Uh, so we'll see. Again, it's just been a handful of guys that have not looked good as far as the pitching side. Offensively, the White Sox have put up some impressive performances. Uh, but again, that could be, you know, the air, like I said, the Arizona numbers could fool you. But, you know, when guys are performing well, that's a good thing. Whether or not it doesn't matter and it doesn't count and it probably won't carry over to the regular season, uh, hopefully it gives the young guys confidence to carry over and start 2019 well. Jim and I will reconvene later in the show as, again, we'll answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox as you had a number of them. But coming up next, I'm joined by Greg Nix to preview the 2019 Chicago White Sox infield on the Sox Machine Podcast. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device, whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. 
We continue our 2019 position previews with a look at the Chicago White Sox infield. In 2018, the White Sox ranked 13th at first base, 16th at second, 17th at shortstop, and 20th at third base in terms of wins above replacement on Fangraphs.com. They missed a golden opportunity, of course, in signing Manny Machado to help at third base and make sure that position is solidified for the next decade. But going into the season, the biggest storyline now is that the White Sox are going in another direction at third base. And it appears that it's going to be Yoan Makata. And so far this spring, Makata has looked good at the plate. So has Tim Anderson. Hopefully, that will translate to a big 2019 from both players. What should we expect from the White Sox infield in 2019? Well, joining me to help preview is Sox Machine's own Greg Nix. And hello, Greg. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me, Josh. And like I said, I think the big storyline now for the White Sox, other than their (laughs) very dismal offseason moves, is... when you talk about the players and the 25 man roster, I think the biggest storyline is how is Yohan Mikata going to handle third base as he's being moved from second to third and he'll be the primary third baseman for the White Sox in 2019. What do you think is the ultimate purpose of the White Sox making this move? Uh, I, I think there's probably a, a couple lines of thought that went into it. Um, the most immediate is that the defensive matri- metrics were not, Huge. Uh, the defensive metrics were not a huge fan of Moncada's last year at second base, and I think Jim has pointed out both on the site and on the podcast that you know he doesn't look smooth at second with some of the um, more complicated uh, biomechanical moves. I guess you could call it of like the sort of like going to his right and then turning and throwing to his left or uh, turning a double play. Um, So even though he's got a lot of tools, it doesn't seem to come particularly natural to him. And I think that's reflected in the defensive numbers. So I think, you know, the hope is probably that he's a little bit more natural at third base and that the tools play up there and the, the defensive numbers just go up um, just by virtue of moving over. Um, I also think that obviously the organizational depth chart is a little bit thinner at third base, um, re- especially reflecting, you know, the uncertainty around Jake Berger and how he's going to come back from the uh, two injuries, the two Achilles injuries. Um Nick Madrigal obviously looks like potentially a future solution at second, but even on the major league level, I think, you know, Yolmer Sanchez's bat plays a lot better at second, and if his defense remains elite, he might be an asset there. Maybe Jose Rondon or even uh, Larry Garcia can be sort of an above average regular there and failing that it's generally easier to find sort of a decent second baseman outside of uh, an organization than it is third base um, just because the offensive standards are higher there and then like the third base has been a black hole for the Sox organization for many, many years. So I think they're, they kind of want to find a solution. Now, obviously, there was one very good solution that they were rumored to be after that they did not go far enough and, and did not nail. So uh, with that in the past, I think in terms of immediate solutions, you know, Moncada has the potential to uh, be the most natural fit there in the organization right now. Did you have a problem with Yomer Sanchez's defense at third last year? 
No, I think Yolmer is a great defender at third, and uh, hopefully that translates to second as well. I think the issue with Yolmer is that third base is not as defensively challenging a position, and the bar for offense is higher there. So I think, uh, you know, his skills really do fit best. I mean, his skills probably fit best as a utility player, but um, if there is kind of one home that he seems to make the most sense for both in terms of his defensive skill set and his offensive skill set, I think is definitely second base. So Greg, back to you on Mikata. With Mikata being at third base, how do you think this change in position will either help or maybe even hurt Mikata going into 2019? Well, I think uh, the way that it could help immediately, like going back to his defense at second base is if he is a better defender at third base if uh you know not having to do so many complicated actions kind of improves his uh baseline performance I think that'll ultimately help his his defensive numbers and his overall value to the White Sox I think the sort of uh yang to that yin is that he's going to have to hit better at third base than he did at second base to be sort of an average bat for the position. Um, so the the opportunity and the cost are pretty clear to me. I'm pretty bullish on Moncada overall. I think, you know, he was a league average player last year, which was something of a disappointment. Um, and I think some of that can be chalked up to missed times and failing to find a rhythm. Obviously, he has a huge flaw in his game, which is the strikeouts. Um, But even with the strikeouts, you know, he managed to be kind of a league average bat. So if he can be uh, an average or above average defender, and if he can improve on that strikeout problem a little bit and be a little bit more consistent with just um, more regular playing time and more experience under his belt, I think he can still be a really good player for the White Sox. I think the thing to keep in mind with Moncada that we lose sight of a lot is that he's still really young. He's only 23. You know, he's younger than Zach Collins. He's younger than Alex Hansen or Alec Hansen, these guys who, you know, we still think of as having a lot of potential. Um, and so I think Moncada still has a lot of potential. And And obviously it's been disappointing that he hasn't sort of come to the majors and lit it on fire like a Juan Soto or Ronald Acuna, similar top prospect type. And and hopefully like uh, Aloy Jimenez will do this year. But I think there are lots of different paths to becoming a really good player. And I think Moncada can still be on one of those paths, even if, you know, maybe he's not quite as likely to be a superstar as we thought. Um, I still think he can be a really, really productive player. And I, and I do think, Ultimately, third base maybe is a better place for him to do it than second base ever was. Yeah, Yohan Mikata, according to Zip's projections, again, we had our best friend of the podcast, Dan Zaborski, on the show last week to share those Zip's projections. Mikata now, with an update with him moving over to third base, is projected to be a 2.3 wins above replacement player in 2019. That would put him as the second best position player for the Chicago White Sox behind Eloy Jimenez when Jimenez joins the White Sox, which Jimenez is now projected to be at 2.6 wins above replacement. Now, that's third base. Let's move over to second base. Tim Anderson made some good progress in 2018, Greg. And again, I know it's just 19th overall for shortstops, but in 2017, 
the White Sox were close to dead last out of their production and shortstop. So it got better in 2018. And I guess the question is, what should we see? What should we expect from, from Tim Anderson in 2019? Are we expecting a similar bump or did we finally see the type of player that Tim Anderson is in 2018? And this is what he is now. I think the expectation should be about what he did last year. And I think the hope should be that he can consolidate some of the things that he improved upon at various points to be a more consistent player over the season. Cause I think we saw, you know, kind of in the last four months of the season, he really took a huge step forward defensively. Um, but in the first few months of the season, he took a step forward with his plate discipline. And and at various points, he, sh- he flashed more power or more contact. And so I think, you know, the, the thing that we should be hoping for is that we see a consistent Tim Anderson throughout the season, whatever that is. And hopefully that is kind of, you know, maintaining that defensive imp- improvement while uh, sort of elong- stretching out that plate discipline improvement and keeping that 20 home run power that I think some surprised some people. And, you know, maybe it's the spring, maybe it's just that I have a soft spot for Anderson as a player and a person, but I'm optimistic that he can sort of settle in as a three win shortstop, a three to four win guy um, over the next few years, which I think would be a huge asset for the White Sox. And the rebuild is, is kind of like, the first guy that they launched this rebuild with, you know, it's it's really hard to find a good shortstop. And obviously his contract, uh, if he's able to do that, would be an asset for the organization. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say just because he's been so inconsistent. But I think last year I was impressed with him. And I think, you know, the next step in his evolution as a player is just consistency. So you think that he can be a three-win shortstop? Because I, I worded the question because last year he was a two-win shortstop. The Zips projections have him as a two-win shortstop. And I wonder, you know, two-win is average. That's an average major league shortstop is two wins above replacement. And to say that Tim Anderson is an average major league shortstop speaks volumes on his progression since he's been with the White Sox farm system, since what we saw from him in Birmingham and in Charlotte and how much he struggled in 2017 to really bounce back from being the worst shortstop in Major League Baseball to league average. But, Greg, is a two-win shortstop good enough? Or does Tim Anderson have to make that leap to becoming a three or four win shortstop in order for this White Sox rebuild to be successful? Well, I think, you know, two wins is not good enough um, to probably, you know, be a major player on a contending team, which is right now what the White Sox need him to be. So I think, you know, right now, no, that's not good enough. I think, the projections are inherently conservative, and so if you think about two wins as kind of the median outcome um, that they're seeing for both Anderson and Moncada, I think that's a little bit encouraging because you know you can, if w- with that conservative baseline and the fact that they're both younger players, it's reasonable to expect uh, at least some development. But to your question, I think you know if Anderson is a two-win player, 
a lot of other stuff needs to go well for the White Sox for him to be the starter on a playoff team. Like, you could take two wins as maybe your eighth or ninth best position player, but right now he's maybe their third best position player. So, like, I would... I would very much hope that he improves, and if he doesn't improve, I think that, you know, after another year, the White Sox probably need to be thinking about what's our long-term solution for shortstop, and where does Tim Anderson fit into our plans as an overall organization? Yeah, that's going to be a tough question for a future conversation. Hopefully, Tim Anderson can make that leap in 2019, because I am with you, Greg. I think Tim Anderson can be a three wins above replacement shortstop, and that will make him above average. It's just when you're looking at the American League Central, this is an area where Cleveland is just head and shoulders above everyone else because they have the best shortstop in Major League Baseball that the White Sox have to deal with in Francisco Lindor. Now, moving over to second base, we talked about Yomer Sanchez quite a bit, but I think the line of thinking that a lot of White Sox fans have with this move from Mikata moving over to third, and we briefly touched on it, is Nick Magical. Is Yomer Sanchez warming the spot here for Nick Magical, a player who has yet to take an at-bat at double-A? Yeah, it kind of seems like it, which is, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, you guys have talked about it, and I think I agree with Jim's assessment that, you know, we can't really count on Madrigal being necessarily a contributor quite yet. Let's see him in a full season. Let's see him completely healthy. Let's see what his bat looks like. Um, but, you know, there's there's not a ton between him and the major leagues right now. It's kind of a few guys, Laz Rivera, Danny Mendick type guys who have, you know, shown something, but that something doesn't necessarily uh, – give you a lot of confidence that they'll be better than Yolmer Sanchez. So I think right now, I think the team likes Yolmer, um, what he brings to the table as a consistent glove who can hit a little bit and is obviously a great clubhouse guy and a fan favorite. So I think he, he kind of is warming the table until somebody surpasses him or until, um, you know, maybe if he, if he craters this season, there's, there's, guys that they can look at in free agency or the trade market or, you know, maybe Jose Rondon uh, makes the team and, and flashes the power again that he showed last year and earns some time in a timeshare or uh, surpasses Yolmer as being the everyday guy. I could see something like that happen just because you sort of know what you're getting with Sanchez, which is a one and a half win to two win type player um, who will, you know, give you some exciting moments, but is not going to bring a ton of value to the team. So I think they, yeah, I guess that's a long way of saying, I think the organization is really hoping that Nick Madrigal moves quickly uh, and shows kind of the, the upside that they were hoping for when they took him in the draft. Now a difficult topic that we'll have to be addressing coming into the season unless the White Sox front office and Jose Abreu come to some type of contract extension prior to the season starting or sometime during the season because Jose Abreu is entering the last year of his contract, Greg. And I mentioned it before on the podcast. 
if Jose Abreu is really good in the first half and the White Sox are not, I think it makes all the sense in the world that the White Sox flip Jose Abreu for additional assets if both parties are uncertain that this relationship is going to continue beyond the 2019 season. There's also part of me that wants to see Jose Abreu in a playoff race. (laughs) Uh, So he has that moment in his career because unfortunately ever since he signed with the White Sox, it's just been losing season after losing season since he's been on the South side. But, you know, where do you think he stands with the White Sox front office? Do you have a feeling that he'll stay with the White Sox beyond 2019? Uh, Or do you think that maybe you agree with me he could be flipped and be used as a trade candidate at some point in 2019? I kind of think that he'll stay. Uh, I, I disagree with you a little bit, just for a couple of reasons, I guess. One is that, you know, we've seen what the trade market and even the free agent market looks like for corner guys, non-elite corner guys, let's say, uh, over the last couple of years. And there's just not a ton of buyers generally. They're not willing to give up that much, even for a relatively proven bat like Abreu's, um, which I think is the problem that they faced sort of when they were listening to offers with him over the last couple of years is that nobody's going to meet their asking price and Abreu's value to the team is a little bit inflated just because of who he what he represents to the franchise as sort of this uh, one in a long line of Cuban players and uh, a team leader who they seem to value so I think you know unless he's really tearing the cover off the ball in the first half which is possible but um, he's been more of a un you know a bit above average player um combining his defense and his offense over the last couple of years. And I just don't see anybody, you know, shelling out a ton for that at any point this season. I also think that the Sox will be probably in- interested in extending him just because moving him opens up another spot on the depth chart, another hole where, you know, you're hoping that Zach Collins makes enough contact to maybe play first, which we haven't even seen him do. So we don't even know if he has the defensive chops to play the field at all, you know, or you're hoping Gavin Sheets adds a lot of power in Birmingham, which is a tough power environment. Um, or you're hoping Jake Berger comes back and, and really rips it. Um, or use your third pick in June on a first baseman out of California. Sure. I mean, but we're okay. So then he's a year behind Nick Madrigal, right? And we're saying uh, we hope that <laughs> exactly we hope that yeah. the White Sox are not counting on Nick Madrigal in the immediate future. So I, I think that kind of with the lack of buyers there have generally been for players of Abreu's type and with what he represents to the White Sox and with no internal replacement being immediately apparent and with the fact that even if there is an internal replacement you know one of them can play dh whether that's abreu or whoever uh collins sheets burger uh drafted player x is i think that it makes a lot of sense for the white Sox to try to extend him maybe you know on a two-year kind of 20 to 25 million deal or three years maybe getting close to $30 million deal. I think that just makes sense for both sides. I don't think Abreu will be particularly eager to test the free agent market. And I think that the Sox uh, 
should be probably interested in in keeping him around for another couple years to help bridge uh, this gap to contention. What if I tell you that that's Yonder Alonso's job? I guess I'd tell you that I don't think Yonder Alonso is as good as Jose Abreu. Uh, well, he's not, <laughs> but <laughs> I agree with you on that. Yeah, so, I mean... And I, I do think, you know, theoretically there's room for both if they're both having good years. Um, I just think we've really only seen Yonder Alonso have a half season that's as good as Abreu's kind of baseline talent level. So if they're if he's their bridge guy, I think they should try to build a better bridge, <laughs> if that makes sense. I just think there's probably, e- even if it's not, Abreu, I think they can do better than Alonzo. I think, you know, as much as they try to say otherwise, Alonzo was acquired. A huge part of why Alonzo was acquired, at least, is because he's Manny Machado's brother-in-law. I think, you know, I I don't hate having him on the team, besides the fact that he's pretty redundant with Daniel Polka. I think right now he seems probably a little bit better than Daniel Polka, so he kind of raises the floor of the team a bit, but... I think uh, I I wouldn't expect Alonzo to be in their medium term plans. Even I think he's probably here this year, and then unless he has an outstanding year, he goes elsewhere. All right. So how do you think in 2019 the playing time will be split at first base between Jose Breu and Yonder Alonso? Are you looking at a true 50-50 split, or do you see Alonzo taking more playing time defensively at first? I kind of think the opposite. I kind of think they'll they'll lean towards Abreu just because he's expressed uh, his preference for playing first, and he has seniority, and he's potentially in their longer term plans. Um, so I'd I'd maybe expect a kind of like sixty forty or sixty five thirty five split with Abreu at first and Alonso at DH. Even though Alonso is the superior defender, I don't think it's by leaps and bounds and you know, I think that the even the difference in first base defense uh, between the best guy and the worst guy is noticeable, but not um, game breaking, certainly for a team that is probably not going to be very good either way. So I think they'll probably uh, give some deference to the uh, team leader, the guy on the bigger contract, the guy who's been an all star for the White Sox a couple of times uh, and just go with pencil in Abreu more frequently. All right. So to wrap this up, overall, do you feel like this infield unit can improve in 2019 from their 2018 rankings? Again, in 2018, they ranked 13th at first base, 16th at second base, 17th at shortstop, and 20th at third. I think they can. I don't know that... Um, I feel especially confident that they will. I do think third base has the lowest ranking, and with kind of the new guy there, I think um, Moncada has the potential to bust out and have, you know, a, a three or four win season, which would really help. Um, I th- it's just that with third base, it's so stacked, right? In the majors, there's so many good third basemen. Yeah, in the league, that I. I wouldn't, you know, if people are like, well, how come Makata can't be a top 10 third base? There's so many good third basemen in Major League Baseball today. It's a stacked position. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that being said, I mean, I I think improvement is not necessarily, you know, internal. 
I guess even if they don't improve a huge amount in the team rankings, they're still a long ways they can go, right? Like Yulmer was decent, but wasn't even a two-win player. So having improving that by a win or two is it w- would be a pretty big development for the White Sox, even if it only bumps them up in the rankings by, you know, three or four spots or something like gotcha. that. Um, but I think otherwise, you know, you can kind of hope that Tim Anderson uh, is hovering on the like top 10, maybe just outside the top 10 shortstops. Um, and that Abreu is kind of healthy the entire year um, because it, it, it kind of the opposite of, third base is there's not a ton of great first basemen. So I could see Abreu having sort of a back half of the top 10 type season, but I don't think that in, even in isolation, I, I'm not sure how likely any single, uh, any of those individual events are of occurring. Well, we're going to have you later in the month of March when we do our 2019 season predictions, Greg. But you could follow Greg on Twitter. He's at Greg Nix Human. You could hear Greg for this upcoming season with the White Sox wake up call and also helping out with the Sox Machine podcast. And he also talks about uh, other baseball teams and baseball in general on his own show, the Duck Snort podcast. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to preview the White Sox infield and hopefully. Uh, we get to see some steps forward in progression from this unit. Yeah, fingers crossed. Thanks a lot, Josh. A quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. We are so happy that they're back on for the 2019 season, helping support us and also helping you get the best deal on tickets. And getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust, and that's why SeatGeek is the way to go, guys. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you are willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. They search multiple ticket sites and they grade every ticket based on value, which helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. You can make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source from everything from sports, concerts to comedy and theater. I use SeatGeek all the time. I have the app on my phone. It's by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. Blackhawks games, Bulls games. If you want to go on the cheap, SeatGeek has great deals. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy games to go to see the White Sox wherever they play. And best of all, Sox Machine listeners, you get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. So if you've never used SeatGeek before, download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone and enter promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE and you get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek. Life's an event. We have the tickets. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you... 
The fans and listeners get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks. Resubmitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Socks Machine. Posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend on patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And I'm rejoined by Jim Margulis to answer your questions this week. And Jim, the first question uh, is combining two questions from a couple of our Twitter followers. Uh, The first half is from Kevin. And Kevin is asking, do you think there is any sense at all to the non-magical reasons the White Sox have offered for moving Yohan Mikata to third base? And Gukas Leogito is asking, is switching Yomer and Yohan Mikata an improvement either defensively or offensively, or is it merely moving around the deck chairs on the Titanic? I think when it comes to the overall impact of the moves for the 2019 season, it will be deck chairs because you will have the same four infielders. You know, it's just occupying different spots. So I don't think it'll make a huge material difference on the product. Uh, I, I think it makes sense long-term for the White Sox. One, because um, yeah, there is such a void at third base, and if Moncada is going to be a fixture on the infield, may it may as well be there so you don't have to worry about the next guy coming up, um, you know, whatever that may be, or you have to place all these hopes on Jake Berger improving his athleticism after blowing out his Achilles twice. So um, you know, it makes a lot of sense there, and, and with Yolmer Sanchez you know, going through uh, you know, uh, his second arbitration season um, and having somewhat of a limit on his offensive potential, uh, unless there's some kind of major surprise, you know, forthcoming in 2019. It seems like that's, you know, leaving that spot for second base when you have Madrigal internally, when you have um, maybe more options on the free agent market uh, makes sense. And I think it makes sense too for Moncada to play third, just because I think we saw some of his limitations at second base, just making the complicated plays, the plays where, you know, he's ranging to his left, but needs to throw to second or, you know, whether it's quick footwork or aligning his footwork with his hands and, you know, making some strange angles and, 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 you know, um, plays in the outfield grass. I think there's just a lot more finesse required. And I think when it comes to defense, uh, Sanchez, he's all about finesse. He's got really, I would say dexterity is a strong suit. He can make a lot of great plays from a lot of different angles and make it look easy. Whereas Mankata, he's more, um, He's not as fluid. Uh, he's not nearly as fluid. And so I think third base might play to his strong suits more in that it's just about, you know, good first step quickness, um, you know, good athleticism, uh, you know, stepping and diving. But most most of the things are to his left. Um, you know, most of the throws are from the same angle. Um, you know, all the throws are heading in the same direction. So there isn't a whole lot of cross body, uh, crazy footwork stuff that second base requires. So I can see it working out in the long run. And it's, you know, I'd still like to see Machado there, but if Machado's not there, um, it's probably the next best thing for the long-term health of the franchise in the infield. Our next question comes from Andrew Katz, who supports us on Patreon. Andrew, thank you so much for your support. And Andrew is asking, Jim, was this the least productive offseason of the last two decades? 2012 was brutal, but they did strike gold by signing Jose Quintana. Uh, Well, Quintana was the year before. That was 2011-2012. Um, the year after 2012, 2013, that has to be the deadest off season. That was the off season where Jeff Keppinger was the major acquisition. Uh, looking at the guys who made appearances, you had Keppinger, you had Connor Gillespie is probably the, you know, made the, the biggest impact, uh, over his Sox career. And, um, yeah, it wasn't much of one, but 
Yeah, Kevinger Gillespie, Matt Lindstrom, Blake T. Cody, uh, Zach Stewart, and Angel Sanchez is the Rule 5 pick who made a brief appearance. Um, that is really all that uh, came of that entire offseason. And that was one where, um, you know, Rick Hahn taking over, trying not to get too, I guess, overcommit to a team that had a flawed roster and kind of broke down at the end. And uh, it really uh, blew up on them. And, and that's kind of where it all went wrong. So I think when you look at that offseason versus uh, this offseason, where you have a lot more name brand talent with Alonzo and Jay um, and, and Kelvin Herrera and uh, Calame and, um, you know, Irvin Santana, assuming he can get into game shape and, and make some starts, There's just a lot more name recognition and, uh, and there have been moves. It's just, there hasn't been a, a centerpiece move that makes the entire off season make any kind of, uh, big picture sense. Yeah. This off season, they did make plenty of moves. They made seven moves. It's just some of them at the end <laughs> had no direction whatsoever unfortunately but thank you so much for your question our next question comes from marty sullivan and this is a good one and marty's asking now that baseball will probably range from bad to unwatchable this year what home improvement project will jim undertake this summer to keep the podcast listeners engaged i think it's gonna be a landscaping year i think it's gonna be outside interesting um gonna be uh, sanding and painting some paneling, but that'll be next weekend. That'll be you know, hopefully a one weekend deal to where uh, won't uh, bleed into the regular season. So um, uh, there won't be much coverage of that, but yeah, there, it shouldn't involve as much work as the bathroom did so where I can provide thrilling blow by blow updates, but landscape, I think will be a more <laughs> gradual process. And, and uh, if I don't want to watch it, I can just, you know, take it outside and listen to the radio and, and think about other things while, or, or at least, you know, take out some frustration on hard soil or something like that. But um, that'll probably be the, the big one. So uh, stay tuned for exciting uh, greenery. Are you a mulch guy? I think so. Still mulling my options, but uh, it's going to be digging up some old stuff that I don't care for. And, uh, and then seeing what will grow with the sun and go from there. Don't you have an outhouse? No, that, it's an outhouse looking shed. Oh, really? Yep. I thought it was an outhouse. No, I have indoor plumbing. It's great. <laughs> See, if it was a an actual outhouse, though, I don't know why I would find that fascinating. Well, it would be. It would. It would be. Uh, yeah, I guess I could call it the guest bathroom. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, it's just a creepy shed that uh, I, I haven't uh, done anything with yet. Gotcha. Well, there you go. That could be it. That could be the home improvement project. And if anybody knows anything about, uh, yeah, in terms of uh, soil acidity or, uh, you know, plants that do well with uh, strong afternoon sun and no morning sun, um, you know, uh, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> more, uh, yeah, uh, I guess, uh, you know, Patreon messages, however it comes to me, I'll, I'm happy to use all input because I'm uh, new to it and, and uh, uh, learning as I go. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yes. Follow us on Twitter at Socks Machine and come, I would say, the end of April, start making suggestions on plant types for Jim that he can plant. And you can take pictures of this. So instead of just poor pitching performances, we'll just get images from Jim on his landscaping efforts. Yep. I think this has got potential. I'm hoping I don't have to talk about it that much. <laughs> I'm hoping we'll have a lot of you know, you know, improvement from Moncada and 
Giolito and Lopez holds his ground, and Eloy provides enough excitement to where we never talk about it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, I'm actually going to Charlotte at the end of April, uh, visiting the Winston-Salem Dash and the Charlotte Knights. So hopefully we'll get some additional content as well uh, for my trip there, very similar to when I made the trip to Birmingham. Uh, so hopefully that will keep you guys engaged. Uh, and if home improvement projects don't, you know, don't cut it, uh, I guess we'll just have to travel more often and share traveling stories, Jim. Yep. Cause I rent. So I just have renting stories. <laughs> yeah. You move every year. So you got that. Yeah. You have a harrowing, uh, uh, weekend. We resigned. We are staying put another year okay. at our current location. Congratulations. Thank you. Our, our most recent, Renting horror story was that great freeze that we had Uh, a water pipe burst in the unit and it flooded our master bedroom closet. So I had to empty out our entire bedroom. Uh, Yeah, it was carpeted and they just Mm. had to rip it all out and replace it. And I pretty much had to move back in and I, I didn't do it right. I, I, I don't have the bed in its original position. So I have less space on my side and Kim, my girlfriend gained like three extra feet. That's a power move, but yeah, the stuff's too heavy though. So I'm not fixing it. Uh, So that's where I am for my home improvement project. But Marty, it's an excellent question. I'm glad that you asked. And now we can look forward to Jim's landscaping efforts in 2019. And thank you to everyone who submitted questions this week. For P.O. Sox, if you have a question about the White Sox or about baseball or even about landscaping for the upcoming 2019 season, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And again, you can help support the show and the website by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash socks machine where we have several different tiers and how you guys can get involved not only do you get additional content every single week with the opportunity to ask questions when we do have guests on the show or ask additional po socks questions jim also writes up po socks mailbags as well and we'll have some special things during the 2019 season so if you like the work that we do at socksmachine.com and you want more from us, again, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. And that will be it for this edition of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Greg Nix for jumping on to help preview the Chicago White Sox 2019 infield. It'll be very fascinating to see the progress this year, especially from Tim Anderson and Yoan Mankata. If you just discovered the Socks Machine Podcast, You can subscribe to our show in a number of ways. One is through iTunes by going to the iTunes store and search Socks Machine to subscribe there. You can also subscribe via Spotify and Google Podcasts and audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. 
And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.